Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. journey through inspiring saints that will carry us through to the start of Lent. And this morning, we're going to talk about a saint that you've probably heard of, you might even be familiar with. And this saint is actually, as I said to us during the children's time, one of the most venerated. And I'm not just talking about Catholics. There are plenty of other families of faith within Christianity that adore the man that we know of, as St. Francis of Assisi, which is preferable to his birth name, Giovanni di Pietro di Bernardone. Yeah, St. Francis. So St. Francis was born in 1182, and he passed away in 1226. He was born in Italy, and he is actually one of the patron saints of Italy, just as last week we talked about St. Joan of Arc is one of the patron saints of France. And he is the namesake for the Franciscan monastic order. So if you've ever had the opportunity to come into contact with some of those Catholic orders, uh, you have Benedictine monks, you have Augustinians, you have Jesuits, you have Franciscans, and there are some others. But Franciscans are actually not often found here in the United States. They are more often found in the world where you have radical poverty because St. Francis, in his faith journey, discovered that he believed God was calling us to go to the very same people that Jesus talks about repeatedly in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who have no possessions, those who need to experience God's grace. He believed that God was sending him and all those who chose to come alongside him to go to those people. He is the patron saint, not just of Italy, but of animals, And Pope John Paul II declared that he was now the patron saint of ecology. St. Francis adored creation. He discovered that he was able to feel God's presence and have this incredible experience when he was out in the world and looking at everything from the trees to the plants to the grass to the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky to the very animals that filled the earth. And so he discovered that In the same scripture I read to you just a moment ago, that we are called to be good stewards, not to have dominion as in destruction, but to have dominion as to oversee and to care for, that yes, the whole earth has been placed in our hands. And he also believed that often the earth and creatures upon it were suffering because of how human sin came into existence and we perpetuated it, and that even the earth needed to have a reprieve and a redemption from human sin. And so Pope John Paul II believed that Francis could inspire Christians, specifically Catholics, but all of us, to be better stewards of the earth and all of the resources upon it. In 1223, he is credited with arranging the first live nativity scene using animals. We had one animal in our nativity scene this year, and that was a handful. Can you imagine having a whole plethora of animals gathered around Jesus? But that was the vision that he wanted to have. 
He believed that even the oxen and the donkey would have genuflected and worshipped the Lord in the manger. That or thought, you know, why is this kid in our food bowl here, right? But he believed that there was something beautiful about having that image for people to meditate upon. He is also the first documented example of stigmata. Now, if you're not aware of what stigmata is, it's very common within Catholicism. The stigmata is bearing the five wounds of Christ. Traditionally, this is the wounds on the hands or the wrists, both of those, both feet, and the side where Jesus was speared. And so Francis is believed to be the very first one to manifest the stigmata. And because of that, he is also the one that many turn to when they see or experience someone else bearing these same wounds of Jesus Christ. He is celebrated not just by Catholics, as I mentioned. He actually has orders of worship and celebration by the Anglicans, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and yes, even Methodists. In fact, you will find one of the hymns that he composed is number 62 in our hymnal, and that is All Creatures of Our God and King. And you will see in those lyrics the reflection of his belief that you can encounter God in creation. And above all, as I said before, he is credited on his feast day, October 4th, with the inspiration to bless the animals. And in the United States, this has really received a revival where people like to bring their beloved pets and have them blessed in the church. Now, October 4th is the feast day of St. Francis. I traditionally like to do the blessing of the animals in May because it can be really cold in October. And if you're going to be putting your hands on the heads of animals, it's a good thing that they're warm and kind of feeling good rather than cold and like insular. So... Here's a great tip for you. If you have a pet, you can go to an Anglican, Catholic, or Episcopalian church and get them blessed in October and then come back here in May and get a double blessing. It's completely valid and nobody's going to look at you strange. Welcome to do that. But again, not only is it his love of creation, but St. Francis gives us something that a lot of people don't know. He was also a mystic. And if you're not familiar with Christian mysticism, I assure you that it is completely valid and actually quite unexpectedly common. A mystic is one who seeks communion with God, being in union with our God through mystical practices. Some of those mystical practices include ecstatic visions, which makes some people uncomfortable, prayerful meditation and contemplation, and pursuing the threefold path of purification, illumination, and unification. The idea that we purify ourselves with our minds, our hearts, our words, our lives, getting rid of the things that contaminate us and keep us from pursuing life of discipleship. Illumination, we get this through prayer and contemplation. We get this through searching the scriptures and studying God's word. We also get this through the ministry of the word and through worship. And last is unification, that having done these first two steps, that we find ourselves more and more being knitted together with the spirit of God. And so because of this, Francis believed that for a lot of people, creation itself could be a mystical experience. If you've ever stood on the top of a mountain, or if you've ever stood at the ocean line and looked out over the sea, or been out in the middle of the woods or a state or national park and had that feeling wash over you, that perhaps suddenly you were so small and the world was so big, just as God is so much bigger than anything we could ever conceptualize, perhaps you have caught a glimpse of that mystical experience. Now, mystical experiences are actually all, all throughout the Bible. In fact, there are plenty of them in the Old Testament. 
And sometimes they use a substance to help get them into that mood. We don't do that so much in Methodism. We don't use substances very often in Methodism. But this is a tradition that you will find throughout world religions, not just in Christianity or Judaism or Islam, the three Abrahamic faiths of the Old Testament. But what we really find is that even within those three Abrahamic faiths, there is a strong history of mysticism. For instance, in Islam, if you've ever heard of the Sufis, or very specifically the sect of Sufis known as the Whirling Dervishes, that is Muslim mysticism. And in Judaism, they have Kabbalah. Not the Hollywood Madonna Kabbalah, that's a different thing. But Kabbalah is usually practiced by men specifically, hence not Madonna. And it is going very deep into the numerology of the Old Testament and using that text to deeply connect you, usually through some really deep meditation on the text. And so mysticism runs throughout all three of the Abrahamic faiths. And in Christianity, sometimes we think, that is just not who we are. I mean, do people still do this mystic thing? Absolutely. There are denominations like the Quakers who most frequently have that kind of mystical experience in their gatherings. And also Methodism. Yes, Methodism. We have a mystical experience almost every time we come to the communion table. Anytime you're talking about a holy mystery, you are in the realm of mysticism. And that is precisely how Methodism refers to communion. In fact, there are a lot of religions, uh, well, actually denominations within Christianity, that have a very specific doctrine and theology about what happens here at the communion table. You have transubstantiation, consubstantiation, you have Zwingliism, memorialism, you have all of these very clearly defined ideas about what is happening here. Then you have Methodism. Methodism says, we don't really know what's happening here, but it's mysterious and holy and wonderful. And we invite everyone to join us here. And that is actually the doctrinal stance of the United Methodist Church. We're one of the only places you can go before the authority of the Board of Ordained Ministry and go, it's a mystery, and they go, absolutely right, well done. Now, that's not the case over here in the baptismal font. We have some very clear ideology of what is happening here. But to know that something powerful and profound can happen here, and we don't have to conceptualize it or concretize it with our words, that we are able to just say, something happened and I have no words, is a mystical experience. And perhaps you've had that encounter at the communion table. Frequently, I get to glimpse it happening from my vantage point serving communion, where someone comes up and is suddenly overcome with emotion and they can't understand why. Why am I reacting this way to something as simple as a piece of bread and a chalice? It's because God is here with us in this moment in a powerful way. And to know that you can be loved and forgiven as is embodied in the receiving, well, first the giving, but then the reception of that same bread and chalice is truly miraculous for some of us. To believe that that same God that created the earth and has redeemed it through Jesus Christ and is sustaining it even now through the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit can want to know, love, and forgive us can be overwhelming. And that is the essence of mysticism. When suddenly the mind and the heart cannot explain. Now Christianity has a lot of people who have a very intellectual faith. 
These are the people who want to study the scripture. They want to understand the context of it. They want to know the theology and the doctrine. These are people who might get pleasure from reading those treaties known as apologetics. These are people who want to understand their faith. Right? They have the strong conceptualism in their mind. Then there are those of us who it's much more about the emotion. It's about the heart. It's about the feeling, that evocative notion that happens when I am in ministry or when a ministry is blessing me or when I'm in worship. That's the idea that through emotion and that experience, we feel very connected to God. But then there's a spiritual component that both of those must be attuned to. And the mystic is specifically directed toward that. It's that extraordinary experience that is too big for the heart or the head. It is that encounter where we can actually feel our spirit being knitted and tied together with God's own. It is a union that is too much for the mind and too powerful for the heart. And so by being attentive to all three of those forms of faith, we can actually go deeper. Now, Francis, as much as he was a mystic, was very well educated. He is actually one of those people that you can turn to his writings, and there are some scholars who believe that he was the first Italian poet, that he was able to put into verse not only his artistic side, but his very intellectual side. So Francis is an incredible human being. He's also an amazing Christian, and he inspires us to look deeper in our faith journey, to say not just what do I think and what do I feel, but who am I? And what is God transforming me through grace to be? Now, you've probably heard that the current pope right now is Pope Francis. He is the first pope in the entire history of the Catholic Church to choose to be named after St. Francis. The very first. Now, that might be astounding to us. How is the most venerated, one of the most venerated religious figures, one of the most venerated saints of all of Catholicism, only now getting a pope? How is that possible? He's not Pope Francis II or Pope Francis Twelfth. There's a lot of Pope Piuses and Pope Gregories. But why has there not been another Francis? Perhaps it's because of who Francis was and is to us today. Francis was born a very rich man. His father was a wealthy merchant dealing in textiles. His mother came from a wealthy family in France. And so he grew up not wanting for anything. He grew up very wealthy. And he was known to be very generous to his friends, throwing large parties and gatherings and lavishing them with wine and food and gifts. And he didn't have to think about the cost of this because his parents just gave him whatever he asked for. But it wasn't enough. No amount of food and partying and gifts and wealth were filling Francis. And so he turned to his faith to find answers. Why is it that I can fill myself with all these things and fill my home with all of this wealth and still hunger? Because he was eating a lot of bread, but he wasn't eating the bread of heaven. And so he decided that he must go a different way, that he must try something else. And so the first thing he did was strip entirely naked. I know, right? Entirely naked. Took off all of his clothes. If my clothes are a symbol of my wealth and my privilege and my prosperity, then off they will go. Now, Jesus didn't walk around naked very often. But Francis thought, maybe this is how I will get closer to nature. 
And he went out into the woods and in his nudity started to commune with nature. And he had some very well-meaning religious officials in his life that were like, Francis, you can't walk around naked all day. You're going to have to put some clothes on. And so Francis decided, fine, if I'm going to wear clothes, then I'm going to be very intentional about how I adorn my body. And so he got something akin to sackcloth, which is not really great. And he wore a robe out of that. You can still see vestiges of this adornment in a lot of the monastic orders, but you can also see it in United Methodist deacons and clergy who choose to wear what we call the flaxen robe. It's uh, off color, and sometimes it's a little bit more coarse in texture, and it represents poverty, which is what Francis wanted to be. He believed that he could find Christ in the poor. For that is to whom Christ had sent us. So therefore, if Christ is with the poor and I want to be with Christ, then I will go to the poor and I will serve them. I will not put myself above them, but I will come to them as their equal. And I there will serve them and show them that they are loved and valued. That the same text that declares that they were created in the image of God is true today. And that God endowed every single human being with dignity and a piece of God's self in their spirit. And that that should not just be acknowledged, but honored. And that is how Francis approached the world in his ministry. And now, that does not often make for climbing the hierarchy of clergydom. And so again, it's not surprising that perhaps this is why the current pope is the only pope to ever take the name Francis. He was of the Franciscan order. And so he was not from Europe, he was not from Italy, he's not a Roman pope. He is a pope from one of the poorest areas in Argentina because this is where Franciscans thrive. They thrive in places of abject poverty in third world countries. For it is there that they find that they are needed. It is there that they find that they are welcome to be in ministry, where where they can truly go to those that Christ called and served. And there they too experience Christ in the communities in which they are immersed. And so Pope Francis has come out of poverty in South America, and he claimed the name of Francis, not just because he was a Franciscan, but because he was told by another bishop, he was a cardinal at the time, he was told by a bishop, when you are Pope, do not forget the poor. And in Catholicism, poor and Francis go hand in hand. And so we have Pope Francis. Francis is an incredible example of what happens when you choose to go outside of your current positions of power and privilege and authority, when you choose to set aside your prejudice and your preconceived notions and decide to just follow Jesus somewhere where you never thought you would go. If you come into the parsonage where I live, the house that the church owns for its clergy, when you enter into the front door, you will see very clearly a picture of a gentleman with unkept white hair, facial hair, and he's all bundled up and it is actively snowing and he is blowing a kiss to the camera. And that person is Chuck. Chuck is a homeless man that I encountered in my ministry at my last church in Norfolk. Now there's a lot of homeless people in Norfolk. There's a large military population, and a number of them, after being discharged, remain there in Norfolk. It's a lot easier to live in someplace a little bit warmer than Washington, D.C., and so there are a lot of homeless people there for that reason. There is also a lot of medical and mental care there, and so you'll find this large homeless population around some of the um, larger hospital 
complexes. And in my time there in Norfolk, I frequented this area called Ghent, and it's a really long street with restaurants and bars and artistic displays all outside of it. And as I used to go regularly to a restaurant, I encountered this man who went there routinely. And Chuck didn't look like everybody else in this restaurant. He didn't talk like everybody else in this restaurant. And it didn't take me very long to learn that Chuck was homeless. But he had income. He was sitting at the bar, and he was actively ordering things, food and drink, and he would come routinely. And he was well known by the servers and the cooks and the hostesses all throughout Ghent. He was well known there, and he didn't beg which was the first thing that intrigued me about Chuck. He wasn't there panhandling at all. And so as I sat down next to him and I started talking to him, I was amazed to learn about his story. Chuck had been in the military. Uh, Chuck was actually high functioning. And he had this belief that he did not want to be hemmed in. If you were to offer to put him up into a hotel, he would say no. He did not want anything over him. He wanted to sleep out in the open. He had a storage facility where he kept a few things, but by and large, he was living as he was out in the world. And Chuck got a, a social security, and so he had a little bit of income, but this was a life that he was choosing. He didn't want you to talk him into a different life. And so it was that over the course of a year, I got to know Chuck and see him routinely. And it occurred to me one time, I'm going to try to do the Jesus thing. I'm going to try to do the most Christian thing that I can think of, and I'm going to invite Chuck to come to my house for Christmas dinner. Now, usually by Christmas dinner, I'm in a coma. After Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and back then I had a young child, so you know how exhausting Christmas Day is. Uh, back then, I would have been completely exhausted, not wanting to clean, nor prepare and cook and serve a meal. But I was determined that I would do this for Chuck. And then to make it a little bit more hospitable, I invited some of the very same servers and cooks that he knew to come and have a meal as well. And so we all gathered at my house, and when Chuck came to the door, he had put on his best sweater, he had cleaned himself up, and he was the consummate guest. It was wonderful to have him come and sit at the very same table where I have served my parents and members of the leadership of my church and had these people gather around this sacred space where we serve food and enjoy fellowship and have him finally in my realm and allow me to serve him. And I had expected that when this happened that I would be in the place of Jesus, that I would be serving him and serving the others and that I would get to experience what it was like for Jesus to serve other people. I couldn't have been more wrong. That night, I found Jesus in Chuck and his willingness to allow me to have him into my home and in my world, to have him seated next to my child, to have him as a part of what I consider to be one of the highest holy days of my Christian calendar, and that he would be willing to allow me to do this. And then to share in conversation and prayer and laughter. That he would be willing to transcend this homeless guy category and become my friend. And our relationship was never the same after that night. But I didn't think of myself as over Chuck because I had a home and he did not. And I had a larger income than he did. And I knew how to keep myself looking more presentable by worldly standards than he did but because we had had this experience. And to anybody looking in, it looked like we were just eating a meal. 
It looked like anything else. But if you were there and at that table, it was anything but a common meal. It was a beautiful union of all these different spirits and people and circumstances. And for about two hours, the world stopped. That's a mystical experience. I thought that I was going to bring him Christ. He brought Christ to me. and That's what Francis discovered. When he went to the poor, when he went to people who were considered to be a political problem, when he went to people who were considered to be an economic crisis, he found Jesus. And he didn't just find Jesus in what he was doing for them or giving to them. He found Jesus in the relationships that were established because he was willing to go to them. Because he was willing to humble himself from his high position of power and authority. Great privilege in Italy. And go to those who did not know that God loved them even though the world shunned them. That Jesus would be with them even though they felt abandoned by society. There he found Christ. And he started to invite more people to come and experience this with him. That's why his order grew. Not only did he grow an order that we all now know as Franciscans, but he inspired a female order known as St. Clair. And so year after year, people started to say, there's something to this. And perhaps that was one of the first times that Christians actually remembered that they serve a homeless, itinerant savior. And in serving and being with the homeless, I have had some of the best experiences I have ever had. And one day Chuck died. And I was asked to preside at his funeral. And it is one of the greatest honors I have ever had. Because when I went to his funeral, he was buried in a military cemetery. And when I got there, I was astounded by the number of people who had come. Countless servers of all ages and generations, cooks, business owners, all of these people who showed up to tell the world that not only did they know, but they loved a man named Chuck. And to see that he had touched so many lives. Brothers and sisters, I have officiated funerals for people of much higher income and circumstance than Chuck that have not had the number of people make time and the effort to come. He touched people. He changed the way we thought, the way we felt. I used to say, I have a friend who's this homeless man. I have this homeless friend. I used to say that. But when I think about Chuck and I see his picture at least once a day, every single day when I walk about my house, I think to myself, I had a friend who just happened to be homeless. But that is not his definition anymore. Because of the experience that I had with him, I don't think of him as homeless. Oh, he had a home. He had a place in this world and he knew it. It just didn't look and feel and sound like all the rest of us thought our place should look and feel and sound. And he was more capable in some ways of showing me Jesus Christ than anyone else. And Francis is calling us to those people. He is reminding us that when you go out into the world, not just into creation, but into community, there you will find Jesus. Jesus didn't stay by himself in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus was constantly with the people. 
And oftentimes it was the people that didn't have a job, so they were available to be with Jesus. It was the people that didn't have a place to live, and so they followed him from town to town and place to place. And let us not forget that we serve a Savior who turned to his would-be apostles and said to them, follow me, leave it all behind, your home, your wardrobe, your job, and come and follow me. And they did. And the world was forever changed by what began as a group of homeless men. And that's what inspired St. Francis to start his order. That once more, a group of homeless men could bless this world. And they did. Now, very few of us will feel that we need to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor. I'm sure you've read or heard that somewhere in the Bible. It is there. Very few of us will follow that. But perhaps the call to action, the challenge that Francis can issue to us now in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to make sure that at least once in the next year, we will choose to go to the poor. Whether we go to feed them, to serve them, to be with them, to bless them with something that they have identified that they need and want, or just to go where we know that Jesus chooses even now to dwell. To be with these people. It is to forever change not only how we experience God, but how others experience God in us. It is a humbling and yet powerfully transformative experience. If you are looking to catch a glimpse of that mystical experience, then you can find it when you follow Francis into the poorest neighborhoods, out into the poorest countries in the world, and to be with those that would never get an invitation to the fanciest clubs, the most in-demand restaurants, or maybe even the White House. These are the people to whom we have been called to whom we have been sent, and to whom we are called to be with. It is a beautiful and noble calling, but it is not for everyone. And so while all of us have been called, how many of us will choose to go? That is the question that every Christian must wrestle with all their lives. But there will come a day when all of us will leave this world like Chuck, all of our possessions, all of our acquisitions, our land, our, our claim to bank accounts and investment accounts, all of those will be gone. And we will become like homeless people until we are resurrected on that day when Christ returns. And on that day, we will be given the gift to come into a kingdom where we don't have mansions, but a place to be with God for all time. So that none of our possessions and these earthly inequalities and these stigmas and categories and social division will ever exist again. We will all be equal. Equally abled and empowered to be with our God, to be with one another. Let us not wait until the kingdom to come to be with people with whom I have no doubt we will dwell for all eternity. Perhaps the ministry to the poor is the gift of introduction that Christ is giving us. Francis was bold enough to go. And everyone else who has gone has discovered that it is not just a duty, it is a blessing. May we be inspired by St. Francis of Assisi 
whether it is to be better stewards of creation, to seek that mystical connection that will transform how we know and love God, or to go as he did to the poorest of the poor and find there the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.